Hello and welcome to, and I'm not quite sure how I lasted this long, episode 40 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Emma Bridges, who is a public engagement fellow at the Institute of Classical Studies in London, who, as you may have heard on previous episodes, provided me with a small grant to help produce the podcast. Worth flagging up, the deadline for the next round of public engagement grants is the 1st of October, so if you've got a project in mind that promotes classics to the wider world, it's worth submitting something for that. As, segueing into today's episode, we discuss every little helps when it comes to such projects. And they accepted my application, so pretty much everybody's got a chance, really. So yeah, lots of discussion today about public engagement and the growing awareness of its importance amongst classics departments, some of the interesting projects Emma's been involved in over the last few years, and why it helps to work with people with a range of skills to help develop such projects. A bit like last week when I was talking to Lee about experimental archaeology and the importance of bringing in people with skills that go beyond the realm of academia, artisans, uh, and in this case, uh, poets, filmmakers, artists, etc., people that can bring a fresh perspective to the classical world and also as well uh, engaging with other people uh, across schools and in other areas of the university particularly people in marketing departments uh, to try to get the most out of these projects we also chat about emma's earlier work on the persian king xerxes and his subsequent reception in the roman period as essentially a stock image bad guy also had to get a question in about his portrayal in 300 her latest research on military wives in ancient Greece and their modern counterparts, and how it wasn't until a six-form open evening that she first discovered classics. Now, just a quick mention before we get on with the show, you can check out former guest of the podcast, author of the Roman mystery series, Caroline Lawrence, on the Audite Latin podcast. Just chuck it into your Google machine, and it's pretty easy to find. So, as always, thanks for joining me, and on to the show. That was fantastic. I really loved the TV series and I was quite lucky to get a ticket in that my friend booked for herself and her husband and he decided that he didn't want to go so she needed someone to accompany her. Um, and it's just as a one woman show really impressive. That oh is it a one woman show? It's a one woman show so she's basically there for probably about an hour and 20 minutes just Phoebe Waller-Bridge on a bar stool with an audience um, and I'm just hugely impressed by anyone who can sustain that for that length of time. Um, so yeah, it was, it was great fun. Really, really fun. I've only recently got into the series. I mean, I watched the first series on Amazon Prime. Right. But they haven't got the second series up on there. Or oh, I mean, you okay. read the second yeah. series on there, but it's not on there for free yet. But I watched the first series and I really enjoyed that. Yes. So I'm waiting for the, the second one to come out now on streaming services. But uh, she's not doing it. Is she going to do another series? Well, I mean, I actually, know. technically, yeah. I suppose I might be ruining it for myself by asking <laughs> that. So maybe I shouldn't do it. Um, but uh, I know she signed on now to do some of the script for the new James Bond film. Oh, is that right? Uh, oh, I didn't know that. She did okay. another series recently. Well, Killing Eve, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which was... Did you see that? No, I haven't oh. seen that. No. So that's, that's fantastic. And actually, um, some of that was filmed in Senate House. So I'm one of these annoying people that when I watch TV at home will be sitting saying to my husband, that's where I work, because there's a lot of things that are filmed in Senate House, obviously, um, and there were bits of that that were filmed here, and also kind of some of it was filmed in the 
sort of rural countryside not far from where I live either so places that we dog walk were also on that series as well yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah I know um, Senna, yeah, Senna House turns up in a lot of things yes. I know it was in it was in the Christopher Nolan Batman films yeah uh, also in Muppets Most Wanted as well yes so, yeah. last week we had a huge set with Chinese dragons and Chinese lanterns and things and it was had signs up saying Shanghai Auction House some Warner Brothers production I think so yeah, there's, there's often something, some filming going on here. Yeah. Because yeah. I was wondering, uh, this is going to be a little bit of a segue, Phoebe Wallace Bridge? Waller, Waller Bridge, yeah. Phoebe Waller Bridge. There's been a lot of uh, recent adaptions of um, stories from the ancient world, mm. myths from the ancient world, but told from a female perspective. Mm. Could you imagine her writing something like that? Oh, I, I was like, it's, I don't know. I'd love to least, see but... what she would do with it. There's certainly some characters who I'm sure she could get her teeth into absolutely that'd be quite quite fascinating I'd not even thought about that but yeah maybe maybe one day maybe we should maybe we should yeah persuade her to do something yeah, like that no she just, it just strikes me I mean obviously <laughs> she's been so successful and it would be very fascinating I suppose watching something like Fleabag to then take that mm. kind of writing and, yeah. and feed that into perspectives on the ancient world as well but yeah that was kind of segueing into like <laughs> kind of talking about particularly things like public engagement mm. so you are public engagement is it officer of oh, public, public engagement fellow? Fellow, that's yeah. the word here at the ICS. Yes, so, right. I mean, just generally speaking, like, what does that kind of entail? So, basically, the ICS, as you may know already, and particularly those of you who've listened to the podcast episode with Greg Wolf, who's the director here, is a national centre for um, supporting and facilitating research in classics. Um, in the UK, particularly, but we also have a lot of international contacts. We have a lot of visiting scholars here. And my role as Public Engagement Fellow is very much to do with taking that academic research out to wider audiences who might not necessarily have had a great deal of contact with academia themselves. Um, so I, I talk to colleagues about how they might take their work beyond the university and talk with, with um, different kinds of public audiences, um, which might involve things like running events, working with creative practitioners, it might involve working with the media, it might involve things like working with historic houses or museums and galleries. So there's lots and lots of different opportunities, different ways of doing that. So I, I spend some time doing my own public engagement work, so I get involved in running events here, so for things like the Being Human Festival and also some ICS-specific events on, on classical themes. Um, but I also do talk a lot to colleagues about helping them to to share their their work with with other audiences. So I maybe I, I do things like running training workshops. As you know, we have a small grant scheme that we've set up here to um, which is a little a sort of seed fund, so that if people have an idea for a public engagement project but they need a, a, a budget to get started, um, so we funded quite a lot of things through that. So yeah, kind of, yeah, it's podcast. Yeah, podcast, absolutely. Um, so um, so finding basically and basically getting people to talk to each other and, and share ideas. So so that when academics do want to do some kind of public engagement, we're not all reinventing the wheel, but mm. actually that we're learning from each other about what works and what doesn't, and how to forge those partnerships with community organisations and so on to, to make this really successful. Are you the first ICS public engagement yes, fellow? Yes, I am. I was yes. wondering about that. So that as a position, you started that in 2017, right? Uh, yes, two years yeah. ago. Yeah. So is this, is you taking this position kind of representative of the ICS increasingly looking towards engaging with the public? And I mean, I, I suppose overall, would you say that 
is representative of a wider shift in particularly academia. This mm. kind of realization that we need to engage with the public and we need to do it in more diverse ways than perhaps we traditionally did. Yes, I think more and more academics are recognising how important it is not just to keep their research within the confines of the library and the academic journal and um, the lecture room. And I think, generally, I think classicists have actually been doing public engagement in lots of forms for, well, decades, if not longer than that. Um, and it, this is definitely part of a wider realisation that this is it's important that we do this, that we demonstrate the value of the work that we're doing in university and we demonstrate why it's relevant, not just within the university and, and why it's important for the wider world to, to kind of see what we're doing. Um, the Institute of Classical Studies is one of several humanities institutes within the School of Advanced Study um, and the School of Advanced Study has a, has a strong public engagement focus more generally as well, so it also ties in with that. Um, I mentioned earlier that uh, the Being Human Festival and, and SAS, the School of Advanced Study, runs that festival, uh, which is the UK's only national humanities festival. And so being a, one of several institutes that are, that are part of that ethos of sharing research beyond the ivory tower, as it were, um, it's a really good place to be for, for doing that. So, um, yeah, but I think generally classicists are, 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 on the whole, very good at getting out there and talking to people other than other academics about what they're doing. Yeah, I think it's... I mean, this has become a recurring thing now on the podcast. When we were talking before about possible directions I might take the podcast in future in terms of, uh, you might say, reception studies and how it mm-hmm. relates to popular culture, but it has been something recurring that's come up talking to people about engaging with the public and, you know, the different ways that we can engage with the classical world. Mm-hmm. And I think the most important thing, I suppose, is making it relatable to people. Absolutely. and. There's lots of different avenues of making it relatable. So the way that what the way that one person might be attracted to looking at the classical world is not the same as somebody else. Yes. I suppose from an academic perspective, we come to it largely through reading the ancient texts, mm-hmm. and I suppose also uh, looking at the archaeology. But uh, unfortunately, that doesn't necessarily always appeal to everybody. But through poetry, through theatre, uh, through film, etc., there are many, many ways mm-hmm. in which this stuff can be communicated to people and engage with people. It's about that finding that personal connection and often when you speak to people who think they don't know anything about classics, they're quite surprised when they recognise that actually there are elements of the world around them that are connected with the ancient world in some way. So that might be a geographical connection, it might be that they you know, they know of an ancient site or they you can talk to them about a place name, but it might be, like you say, something to do with reception. Lots and lots of people will say that their first experience of Greek myth would have been through a film or a TV series mm. or um, a, a book of stories that they read as a child. But it might also be about things like broader personal experience. So, for example, the fact that we can talk about ancient societies and the way they organised their societies and the way they related to one another and how they... Um, how their politics worked and how their built environment functioned and this kind of thing. People often, when they start to see those connections or contrasts, that often is the thing that sparks someone's interest as well. So there's lots of ways in to, to getting people to think about, about the ancient world. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was doing, uh, or I was teaching the 
uh, module on reception of classical myth at mm-hmm. Kent uh, back in the in the spring term, and one of the seminars that we had in that was on the production of the Medea um, produced in Japan uh, in yes. the I think it originates in the 1970s or 60s, yes. yeah. uh, which took off massively and they yes. took on tour around the world. The, the, the Ninagawa. Yes, yeah, yeah, and the way it yeah. was. Um, it was actually done in Japanese mm-hmm. as well, and done in a very Japanese style, which drew on like kind of established methods of theatre mm-hmm. in Japan. Is it kabuki yes, uh, theatre and uh, and various other influences as well from Japanese culture, and and yet that somehow then translated its way back that mm-hmm. they could perform it in Athens mm-hmm. and it's still sold out and mm-hmm. it's, it's just it's just quite, quite striking to me in a situation like that you have a Greek play from thousands of years ago which then could be translated into a Japanese context mm-hmm. and utilising a lot of say Japanese cultural influences and then it can come back to Greece yes. and still people there's something yes. there there's like a core element to it there are core themes and there are core aspects to it that clearly resonate with people yeah. Very strongly, regardless almost of the the, the trappings that it's put in. Yes. I mean, I suppose. I mean, obviously, that a big aspect of the whole Japanese production was the fact the way it was presented, mm-hmm. and that was very important. But at the same time, as say that kind of there are core elements there mm-hmm. that it seems to be, regardless of how you frame it, still has an yeah. appeal to people. It's one of the things that I personally find endlessly fascinating about myth and its reception. Um, I'm particularly interested in creative responses to ancient myth in in lots of different formats, uh, artistic and literary and theatrical. Um, And I love the fact that every new retelling tells you as much about the person who's of the society where the retelling is happening as it does about the ancient story. Um, And I think, again, that's often a really good way into getting people to think about the ancient world because those stories have elements that speak to new audiences all the time and there's always something that you can draw out that's that's relevant whether it's about gender or class or race or whether it's about as I say politics um there's there's very very often something that people can connect with really easily Mm. Mm. I mean in your time as as public engagement fellow here have there been any kind of standout projects for you at all that, that you've been involved in or you've, you've, uh, or you've seen? I was just, well, so a couple of things that we've done here at the ICS, but also I can, I can talk to you about some of the projects of, of colleagues elsewhere that I really admire and that I think are really excellent examples of public engagement. We've done some quite fun events here at the ICS. We, I was just chatting to some colleagues at lunchtime and we were talking about how Kind of people always seem to think we, we seem to enjoy fancy dress occasions. So we had a we had a themed event uh, last Halloween actually, which was about ancient magic, um, which was a good opportunity for a bit of a costume party for those who wanted to come in costume. Um, and there we had a series of, of short talks by academics. We also had then a whole bunch of hands-on activities where people were making curse tablets and curse mm-hmm. dolls, and um, looking at kind of um, various sort of ideas about ritual objects and so on and those kinds of events I think uh, they're really fun to to put on it's it's a lot of work to pull an event like that together but actually there's a real element of of enjoyment in putting something like that together so it doesn't always have to be desperately serious you know when when you're doing engagement and we had a lot of really lovely feedback from the audience who came to that um so 
that's 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 just one example of the the kinds of things that that we do. The other thing that I've been involved with since being here was last year's Being Human Festival, which I've already mentioned a couple of times. Um, and for that, uh, a colleague, Ellie Mackin Roberts, and I put on a series of events themed around weaving women's stories. Um, I'm particularly interested because of my my current research project in the women of ancient myth. I've got a particular interest in Penelope, particularly. Ellie works more with sort of material culture as well. And we, we brought together this series of, of creative events in which we worked with a group of poets who produced some new material on um, the women weavers of ancient myth. But we also had um, Mary Harlow, who is an academic at the University of Leicester, um, brought her full-scale replica ancient loom to the event. So we had people actually doing some weaving on this giant loom, which we used as a backdrop for the creative events. And then we also worked with a... Um, a textile artist, Majida Clark, who put on a weaving workshop and talked about her own contemporary weaving techniques. So again, that was another way of bringing together our own research and the things that we're interested in and sharing with other people and and learning from other people's experience as well because, again, that's one of the really, really important objects of public engagement is that it's not a one-way conversation. It's not about academics just sharing knowledge with the wider world. It's actually about learning from each other and talking to people and by talking to other people getting a new perspective on our own research so I learned a huge amount from the weaving events because from talking to creative practitioners about their responses to some of the ancient stories it made me think afresh about how the ancient authors that I was familiar with had approached the material and then also by learning from someone who's who does the very hands-on physical weaving activity which I had never really had experience of before it gave me a, a much greater appreciation of how that operated in the ancient world so again that gave me fresh perspectives I started thinking about Penelope as a weaver in terms of her um, embodied experience and gosh that the, the, the idea of a woman sitting at night weaving tirelessly what does that do to your eyesight what does that do mm. to your hands do, do you get kind of kind of hunched shoulders and arthritis and, you know, all that kind of thing. So, so thinking about things in, in different different ways. So, that yeah, there are a couple of examples. It's quite interesting because that follows on quite strongly from the podcast episode I did prior to this one uh, with Lee Grana. And Lee's, one of his main areas uh, of interest is uh, experimental archaeology. Mm-hmm. So, you know, recreating things from the past and seeing how they work and not only just seeing how they work, but actually the creation process as well and, and how you go about that. But it's kind of very much like what you're saying. It's it's bringing in people that have expertise in terms of, uh, you know, manufacture of industry. Mm-hmm. And I mean, actually, Ellen Swift, did the very first episode, um, some of the projects that she's done, uh, which you know, Ellen's main focus is material culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Roman world, particularly recently Roman Egypt, and looking how things were used, and uh, especially when I say the very tactile aspects of it. And she was saying she found out loads about objects mm-hmm. by talking to people that actually, you know, their their lives are based around the industry that that's related mm-hmm. to. I mean, it might not be exactly the same today as it was in the past, but in any case, I suppose there's an aspect of it that's quite immersive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's going beyond just simply looking at the text or looking at the object in. Well, out of context in a museum or in a collection or whatever and actually saying about these things how they're used how do people interact with them what do they mean how did that change over time in terms of as you're saying like how did you know weaving affect somebody's body that's that's the sort of thing where we look at it and maybe in the past people haven't really thought about that yeah. so much and as you say like by bringing other people in with 
uh, expertise and, and different perspectives on things Absolutely. really have to freshen it up. Mm. What initially led you to the world of classics, ancient history, etc.? So I, I guess one of the reasons why I've ended up um, working in public engagement and taking classics to wider audiences is that I, I'm someone who came from a very non-traditional classics background. I went to a state comprehensive in County Durham uh, in the northeast, and until I was 16, had no idea what the classical world even was. You know, I'd been on kind of the old school trip to Hadrian's Wall, but hadn't really thought about that as part of anything beyond a local monument mm. sort of thing. Um, and then I went to a, um, a sixth form college for A level. My, my comp didn't have didn't have a sixth form. And I was doing English literature and history. I'd already decided that I was going to do those two as A levels. And I was kind of sort of casting around for third A level. I went to a sixth form open evening and met the class of classical civilization A-level teacher who was waxing lyrical about the wonders of the course that he taught and was just brimming with enthusiasm for this subject I'd never heard of and I was completely hooked so I, I kind of it felt at the time like it was an A-level that worked really well because I was interested in literature and I was interested in history, so it sort of felt like a really good fit with, with the other A-levels that I'd chosen. Um, but I don't think I've really expected that, at that point, that would be the thing that I did for my professional life <laughs> in, year, in years to come. Um, so he was... I think for a lot of people it starts with a really inspirational teacher, and he was, he was fantastic. Um, and I, I just was completely blown away by the fact that I could read this incredible poetry that was thousands of years old but I could also study the temples of classical Athens and I could also learn about the politics of the Roman Empire and all of that stuff and I could get all of that from this one subject um so obviously we read everything in translation and that was really what what kind of set me off on the path and then when I was looking at um university applications I was super keen to carry on doing some form of classics and was being encouraged to think about applying for Oxbridge, which I, again, I knew nothing about. This was totally beyond any, the realm of my own experience. And it, until that point, um, you had to have A-levels in Latin or Greek to apply for a classics degree at Ox- Oxford or Cambridge. Um, and clearly there'd been a, a realisation that this was deeply problematic because most people who had A-levels in Latin or Greek had been to a private school, so it was very exclusive in terms of who could be admitted. I guess I was kind of lucky in that that was the year that Oxford had started offering a degree where you didn't have to have Latin or Greek A-level, um, but you basically turned up and then learned a language intensively for the first two terms, um, which was quite full on <laughs> it was really really hard going for that first two terms really felt in at the deep end I did a, a short summer course for a couple of weeks um in the summers before before I, I went to university um and yeah kind of got then then got immersed in languages but I had no exposure to the ancient languages until until that point and then from then on um I sort of ended up carrying on researching it you know kind of going on to do a PhD um, and then for a long time, taught at the Open University, um, up until the point at which I took up the job here a couple of years ago. Mm. 
Because your PhD thesis and subsequent monograph was on Xerxes. That's right, the reception yes. reception of Xerxes. Yes. The, the reception of Xerxes in that regard was his reception subsequently in the ancient world. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, but I've got to start by asking, so what did you think of 300? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> everyone always asks. I was, was going to say, yeah, yeah, I bet I that's mean, a question that's gosh. often asked. And I bet when we were talking about yeah. great ways in which uh, people are drawn to the ancient world, you've got something like 300, which is very problematic and I was just wondering yes. so what, what's your what's your thoughts on that I suppose a better way of framing it is what's your thought, thoughts on something like 300 where as a film it's deeply problematic but on the flip side of that might lead people to look at the ancient world so I mean, I think, how do we how do we deal with attention I think that's that? often the case with any reception I mean how many or how, how many kind of aspects of, of, of the ancient world per se are, are problematic mm. but actually they're a way of opening a conversation. And actually, if you can confront the problematic issues and you can say, well, something like 300 is um, deeply problematic in the way it represents self and other, but also in its representation of basically what we might think of as toxic masculinity as well. You know, there's mm-hmm. a whole load of, of issues going on there. But yet, if we can actually not just ignore that and use it as an opener for a conversation, then that's really useful. But I think the danger is when we just kind of treat it as as a piece of kind of exciting popular culture without challenging any of those things critically um and certainly you know if you if you're talking about that as a as a as a kind of um as an object for study in say a reception course or something then it's really really important to confront those issues um and to to, to ask why at that that historical and cultural moment did that seem like a good story to tell? Why was it interesting mm-hmm. at that point? Um, and as you would with any with any kind of reception, you'd always think about the context. So yeah, um, a, a difficult one, um, but but really valuable for opening those conversations. I think. And mm. mm. uh, what was just to kind of tie into that? I suppose the Roman aspect of the podcast. So what was kind of the general attitudes towards Xerxes in, in the Roman period? I mean, it's not something I've really thought too much about. I did come across the other day uh, uh, Panieric from the... Uh, is it Maximilian or Constantius the first One of the two of them, one of the Tetrarchs, where Xerxes is mentioned in passing mm. because it's to do with naval warfare. Yeah. And it talks about Xerxes being really stupid or something, and then in comparison, not making yeah. the mistakes that he did. So that was, yeah. that was, that was actually... Uh, a couple of weeks ago, so then then I saw your book notes. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. <laughs> yeah. But I was yeah, I was just wondering like so was, he, was Xerxes a well known figure in He tends to get wheeled out a bit as a cardboard cutout in the Roman period by um sort of as a as as a sort of oratorical maxim, I guess, in a way. So it's almost like people know who he is, he's kind of um but that he's used as a very sort of um, as I say, a cardboard cutout. So it'll be someone who, if you want to compare someone to the archetypal tyrant, then we like Xerxes. So he doesn't really get a full character drawing in any sense, like you get in Herodotus or in Aeschylus. Um, but it, it's sort of interesting how his name just crops up again and again in in the Roman period, with the sort of assumption that people know who he is, but. W- we're not necessarily interrogating his, his backstory or, or thinking about the, the bigger picture. It's, it's, it's kind of like a name that gets cast around. So in some ways, less interesting as a reception because there's there's not very much kind of meaty material kind mm. of talking, talking. You know, he's often just a point of comparison with the bad guy. Kind of yeah. So, Is he a bit yeah. like, I suppose you might say, 
I'm trying to think of a comparative. Would someone like Machiavelli, Machiavelli be an interest? Like in terms of like he's a name that he's a name that gets drummed up out of context of the actual person, yes. almost as just meaning something bad. Essentially, yes, that and, people uh, don't necessarily have to know any any wider context. Um, and I kind of half wonder if that's possibly what what led to things. You know, like the like why three hundred came about, for example. That actually there's this name that we we sort of know, and that he's sort of the bad guy, and we need to. I don't know, um, but yeah, certainly, certainly that's how he gets he gets used mostly in the wrong view. Gosh, it's a while since I've thought about it. It's a long time since. <laughs> is it is it one of those things as well? Though I mean, obviously, I suppose in the Roman period as well, it's just the natural fact that he is a Persian ruler, and the Romans are constantly on off at war with Persia. Yes, so yeah. in that regard, as you're saying, he kind of becomes a bit of a you know he is a very prominent name attached with empire from yeah. that region of the world so he yeah. just becomes a very easy person yes. to kind of set up it's a bit like again it's this is a very loose comparative but it's like when people just talk about like Hitler or whatever yes. like you know yeah. like the comparative with invading armies or whatever it's a name you just chuck out yeah. without really you don't have to know that yeah. much about the person you just need to know very basic Absolutely. issues yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, poor Xerxes uh, well <laughs> I mean I suppose it's that argument isn't it like is he any worse than people on the other side well, yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's sort of the, the kind of more nuanced portrait that you get in Herodotus that mm. is, is more um, yeah more, more subtle in, in that sense that actually well do do the Greeks share some characteristics with their enemy in, in some ways so yeah um, but no he does he just he does tend to get trotted out a little bit later on yeah. that, that kind of character yeah. yeah you went on to you edited a volume of these the bulletin of the Institute of Classical Studies or, uh, or the was the uh, my notes here Practitioner's Voices yes, yes. that's the one yeah. uh, oh Classical Reception Studies sorry yeah, oh, so, um, uh, yes pra- yes Practitioner's Voices in Classical Reception Studies yeah yeah it's quite it yeah. <laughs> yeah. and that was that was bringing together though uh, poets um, yes. artists uh, people in theatre as well yes yeah. and, yeah. Well, I mean what was that because that was actually based around a number of interviews you did that you recorded yes. as well right? so, so. Um, Practitioner's Voices is uh, an open access journal um, edited by Jess Hughes, which is basically getting academics interested in classical reception to hear the voices in it, whether well, they're usually transcripts rather than audios, but hear the voices of people who actually produce different kinds of, of receptions. And it was founded by Lorna Hardwick um, several years ago, basically from the recognition that those of us who study classical reception often interrogate the object itself, whether it's a piece of art or whether it's a text, but might not necessarily always have been able to hear the words of the creator of that object. Now, obviously, when you're talking about ancient texts and objects, then that opportunity's long gone. But it's really useful if you're looking at classical reception in the modern world to be able to talk to people who are producing classical classical receptions now or inspired by the classical world in some way. And that particular volume that I produced came about because I ran an event while I was at the Open University where we brought together academics and practitioners who were working on reception and put them in a room together and had a really lovely day talking to each other about our work from these different perspectives Um, and a lot of the people who were involved in that event were the people who I then subsequently went on to interview for the journal 
Um, and it was quite it was a very broad remit. Um, it was called Remaking Myths in the 21st Century. So, you know, there are endless possibilities in terms of the number of people you could speak to for something like that. But obviously I had a core of people because they'd been involved in this event. Um, and I've, uh, as I said earlier, I've always really enjoyed hearing about people's creative process. And I think in recent years, although my kind of, as you said, my doctoral research started out with reception of historical events, I've become much more interested in mythology and its reception in recent years. And I think partly there's been, a, because there's been such a huge um, moment in which there are so many creative responses out there at the moment that there are kind of endless possibilities for talking to people as well. And I never really, you know, I never get bored of seeing those new versions and work, kind of thinking about what the motivation is behind creating those. Because mm. it's different depending on who, who does it and when they do it and what their, what their own perspective is on it. It's, there's never two, two versions that are the same. And that, I guess, that's why it's still always interesting. Yeah, no, yeah. it's like we were saying earlier. I mean, there's, there's so many perspectives that, mm. you can, that you can bring to it. Uh, that create this, I suppose you might say, a bit of good ancient analogies like a mosaic of, yeah. uh, builds up the picture of, yeah. I don't know, a certain myth, but it's all made up with little uh, tesserae of mm. everybody's own individual yeah. take on it. I'm quite proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's that often people think that they know, so what you're talking about Xerxes, I've been doing a little bit of research on Medusa recently for an event that my colleague Valeria Vitali and I are running for this year's Being Human Festival, um, which I'm not going to reveal exactly what that is yet because the festival programme hasn't been announced and there'll be a, a launch around around that soon. But um, So I've been thinking about Medusa and again, with Medusa there's often a sense that people think they know Medusa mm. and that she's this terrifying monster with snakes for hair who turned people to storm but they don't necessarily know anything about the backstory of Medusa. Um, and so often it's, it's those reworkings that when they get out there that people think, oh gosh, I can look at this quite differently now. And and you find that with a lot of a lot of mythical stories, I think, that and when when a new creator brings their own version or produces their own version, we get a, a totally different view of, of the character at the centre of the story. So in terms of talking about reception, um, well actually no, not just about reception, but much much more broadly. Um, I mean, do you have any thoughts on the future in terms of what you'd like to see? We're talking about how reception is becoming, well, I suppose you might say actually more, more public engagement is coming to the fore mm. in terms of it, it's something that people are becoming increasingly aware of. You say people have always perhaps done it, but mm. now as it's own kind of thing, it's having much more of a, I don't know, uh, it's much more on the agenda mm. for a lot of um, departments. And I was just wondering, I mean, like, what do you think about public engagement? Do you have any kind of ideas going going forward in the future? Do you, is there anything you'd like to see pushed forward in that regard? Oh is there anything you'd like to see developed? I, mean, I feel like that people are the people who are doing public engagement are doing a brilliant job of it. Often on very limited resources, with not a lot of time to do it, and not much budget. Often, um, and. And it's quite remarkable how much engagement work is, is going on, given how pushed for time a lot of academics are. Um, I think, I mean, this this is possibly a little bit, a bit kind of political maybe, but um, I think in terms of 
the way it's valued in universities, I would really like to see it much more formally integrated into how universities um, sort of university expectations about what, what academics do because often it's expected that academics will do some form of engagement but they aren't necessarily given time to develop their ideas mm. um, it's not always for example included in promotion criteria whereas actually to do it well takes a huge amount of time I was kind of thinking about you know, I'm really lucky in that I have a job where a portion of my time is dedicated to doing public engagement supporting other people to do public engagement but very few academics have any time in their workload that is allocated for doing engagement and yet they're still expected to do it and I was kind of working out I think for a, some events that I did recently I kind of jotted down just how much time I'd spent and often it's the invisible labour that goes behind the, the, the shiny event or whatever yeah. it is at the end the end product and I I think that often these events take as long as writing a journal article to pull together and I think I'd love it if that would be recognised more in how academic contracts are, are put together and, and this kind of thing because it, it's it's hugely important and we need to I think now more than ever we need to show the value of the humanities and the value of humanities research so yeah so that's that's quite serious as a response I guess <laughs> but I do I do feel quite strongly yeah. that that that's really really important um and and for people to have really good support for, for doing it um obviously I'm I'm here and able to do what I can but I'm just one person um yeah. and universities often have public engagement teams who support academics to do public engagement as well, which is absolutely fantastic because they can provide a lot of really good professional advice and support. But often it is about the time and it's about the budgets as well. So mm. there's, there's, there's still a way to go um, yeah. for that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it's quite interesting what you're saying about uh, also having people at universities that work in public engagement working with uh, academics as well. Because one of the things I think sometimes is that you know, coming from an academic perspective, I don't know what the best way of getting stuff out there always is. So yes. I don't necessarily know if the way I communicate things is the best way. And sometimes you need a sounding board of mm-hmm. people that are working full-time in that world almost yes. to actually be able to say to you, well, maybe you want to do it this way or maybe you want to think about doing it mm-hmm. like this. And I think one of the things that I, I was thinking about recently uh, is that I think public engagement in many respects, like a lot of the rest of the work that we do, uh, is more effective when it's done in teams, in mm-hmm. groups. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's you, you can do stuff by yourself, but I think having other people there, kind of like what we were saying earlier about having different ideas and different perspectives, but I think that feeding in together helps you get the most out of doing public engagement. I mm-hmm. think it's that's the thing. Like when you're when you're sort of left those, you're saying in some cases though, where perhaps in departments there isn't that level of support mm-hmm. and there isn't that. Uh, there isn't people that you can really go to or get much response out of to to help you have to go about doing this in the best way. Like as an academic, you know mm-hmm. that you're already using up time to do it anyway. Yeah. But on top of that, you're like, is this really the best way yeah. of doing it? And like, the worst thing that you can do is, it's in some respects with this, is to go out and do something that then actually falls flat on its face yes. because not necessarily the idea is bad, but because the way it's been put together hasn't necessarily been, necessarily been the best way to do it which isn't necessarily the fault of the person that's done it but you, you need that mm-hmm. as I say a support network there in, in terms of what you're doing I suppose mm-hmm. in within the university but then as we've been talking about as, as you've done yourself you know, with people at other institutions um, mm-hmm. 
It's like, I suppose, with this podcast, really. This podcast wouldn't work if it was me just sat there talking to myself. <laughs> maybe, maybe it would do, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a bit sceptical that anybody wants to listen to that. Um, I think my students get sick enough after an hour of me lecturing. So. <laughs> um, but in any case, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's very important, I suppose. Yeah, that, that collaborative element is hugely, hugely important. And it's not just about collaborating with other academics, but for me, it's vital to build collaborations with community partners, particularly if you are... Um, if you're wanting to engage with a particular community then the starting point is to ask that community what's going to work um, because it's no good designing some amazing shiny public engagement project and then recognising that you've arranged it for um, a location or a time which is just simply not going to suit the people that you mm. want to talk to so that's really really vital keeping that, that communication and, and building building partnerships with people and organisations who are experts, um, not academic experts, but are experts in whatever it is that you want to, you know, whatever you want to share or the, the kinds of people you want to talk to. Um, that's that's always the, the, the best way to go about it that's the, and building those relationships. But that takes time. Mm-hmm. It takes time to find the, the right people in the organisations that you want to work with sometimes. It takes time to build the relationships as well because often say if you're working with I don't know say a charity or a community organization equally people are pushed for time and don't have huge budgets and have different priorities and aren't necessarily going to have huge amounts of of energy to dedicate to whatever it is that you as an academic want to do so it's about finding those compromises as well it's really important Yeah, yeah 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 but the good thing is that there are I would say quite a few academics out there now that are very well disposed towards yeah. doing it. There are plenty of people yeah. to collaborate with. And yeah. as you say, I think I think universities are becoming increasingly aware mm-hmm. of of the necessity of, of outreach and as such are kind of increasingly lending more support to it. So hopefully it keeps on developing yes. on an upward curve in the future. For sure. Yeah. yeah. Just to bring it back around to your own work, uh, in terms of the future, your current project is looking at uh, military wives That's right, in yeah. ancient Greece. So yes. I was wondering if you could say just about that, about what you're working on at the moment. Because so, you've got a, is that under book contract? Yes, right? yes. So I'm kind of in the, well, getting towards the final stages of the, the writing process, hopefully. Um, so yes, so this is a book which is provisionally titled Warriors Wives. And it's an idea that I've had in my head for several years now. And it's only when I um, took up the job here and I have dedicated research time that I've actually had the time to develop it into first of all the book proposal and now the book itself Um, and it's basically looking at soldiers wives in ancient myth but also thinking about how those experiences that we see there compare with the experiences of contemporary military wives Mm -hmm. and military wives is a bit of a slightly problematic term so I always feel I have to put it in scare quotes because it suggests that women are defined simply by the role that their husband um, undertakes um and so obviously that's a very simplistic way of looking at it because we can't map on exactly ancient experiences with contemporary ones because there are lots of you know at a very basic level so for example now women serve in the military so um you might have two people in a relationship who are both in the military now clearly that doesn't map onto the ancient um ancient world um and gender roles are clearly very different. But there are... I started thinking several years ago about how there are certain elements of those experiences that are relatable. So the wife saying goodbye to her husband, not knowing whether he's going to come home alive. 
what happens when you're apart? How do you, um, as a military spouse, manage that time when someone is in a war zone and you're fearful for their safety, but you've still got a life has to carry on at home? So that's the kind of the Penelope figure in, in a way. Um, what happens when someone comes home and they have seen and experienced things that as their spouse you can't really imagine mm. and yet it's left sometimes a very lasting impact on them. Um, so we get we get various kinds of reunion in ancient myth. We get, um, we get the Penelope and Odysseus reunion which kind of is sometimes romanticised but actually is much more complicated because they go through this quite complex recognition process which um, mirrors I think some of the issues that military couples have when they've spent time apart mm. over a long period of time. Then the opposite end of the scale we of course get Clytemnestra and Agamemnon and I, I sort of feel like that Clytemnestra is really the sort of extreme manifestation of of the fears of troops of what goes on back home when you're not there. Mm. Um, she's There's another man in um, Agamemnon's bed and of course the the, the, you know, the the fact that she she then goes on to murder Agamemnon it's 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 very as as myth often is it's a very extreme kind of scenario, um, so, but also thinking about things like bereavement, thinking about different kinds of loss, thinking about what happens in the aftermath when um, a soldier comes home traumatized. Mm-hmm. So there's there's a huge amount of of things there that I think are. A lot of a lot of quite difficult subjects to to talk about, but I'm just hoping that it opens up a bit of a conversation that um, enables us to think about the experiences of contemporary military wives as well as those of of the ancient figures that we that we see in myth. Um, there's a, a sort of um, a um, a couple of studies by a psychiatrist, Jonathan Shea, um, written a couple of decades ago, that focused on, um, it, it, they were called Achilles in Vietnam and Odysseus in America, and they very much looked at the stories of veterans and how yeah. Vietnam veteran stories might compare with the experiences that we see in the Homeric epic. And there have been several kind of initiatives in the States, particularly looking at um, ancient texts and, and using those as a way of talking about veterans' experiences. Yeah. But I'd always felt no one's talking about the wives. No one's talking about the, the family's experiences and the wives' experiences. So so I'm hoping that with what I'm doing here, it's a, it's a very small start for what I think could be potentially a very big conversation that I'm not equipped to do all of it, but I, I just want to make a start by, by kind of contributing to that, opening that discussion. Yeah, no, it's interesting because it's uh, the one thing that sticks in my head. Uh, um, obviously, recently we've had the centenary of World War One, mm-hmm. and I remember going to talk about um, about subjects that talk wasn't it? Was a while ago. Um, but the one thing that stuck out with me was that there was one part of it, they were talking about uh, wives in World War One where their husbands didn't come home from yeah. the war and the wives are left usually with children as well and basically the way the government just didn't do anything for mm-hmm. them but basically they'd have to go in front of a tribunal of all men mm-hmm. and be like I need money because I don't mind a husband anymore mm-hmm. I've got to feed my family and you'd have a group of men who would basically judge them mm-hmm. uh, just on this person standing mm-hmm. there and more often than not they probably wouldn't get anything at all and it was and it was one of those things that stuck with me because I felt like that was quite 
I felt that that was an almost untold story. Mm-hmm. Of, I mean, not completely untold, but maybe a lesser known yeah. aspect to the war, and particularly the aftermath of the war, I suppose, as is so many things, particularly now in British society, we have a rose-tinted view mm-hmm. of the past, mm-hmm. and I suppose to some people the idea of uh, a wife whose husband went off to war, you know, being a war widow is, is something that people would think like, oh, that's that's a very kind of respectful mm-hmm. kind of position mm-hmm. to be in. But in actual fact, like, you know, the, the, the British government treated women in that, Mm-hmm. In that um, in that situation, uh, almost abhorrently, really, yeah. and uh, those. But that's the thing. It's kind of perhaps you could say, I suppose, uh, that people perhaps look at things like World War One like that, and it's almost we forget sometimes about the people back home, like yeah. you know, and as much as like you need to pay attention to the sacrifices that were made and the, the guys that went off to, to fight in the trenches is you're saying that there is a mm-hmm. tremendous impact that leaves on people back home and even when if you watch a film on it there's always the bit where the person comes home and it's like well your son's died or your husband's died or whatever mm-hmm. and sometimes that's almost kind of the end of the story mm-hmm. and it's not so much mm-hmm. about there is an awful lot of aftermath yeah. after that and the the the, the wife or the, the mother or the daughter or whatever um, can still have to go through a tremendous mm-hmm. amount after that mm-hmm. it's um yeah, as I was trying to say, is it's like it's carrying on that story that it's not just about when the man doesn't make it back home. It's yeah. not where the man's story ends, but actually yeah, as part of a, a relationship yeah. or, or part of, um, well, yeah, relationship where it be um, familial or through uh, marriage, mm-hmm. you know, that, that affects the other person and carries yeah. on. And I think in, in contemporary society as well, because we have sort of the military is... is is a kind of separate section of society. It's not like everyone serves in the military, like in the ancient world. Um, there's often misconceptions and misunderstandings about what what that involves, and not much understanding of, of the impact that that has on, on a family, um, has on a partner. Um, and today, the challenges are, are things like, well, actually, there's often an expectation that the military is a kind of two-person career. In other words, that the spouse who isn't serving needs to be flexible enough to uh, move around with postings, to drop everything at the drop of a hat because the service member is posted abroad and therefore someone has to be around to look after the kids and that kind of thing. So that that really inhibits sometimes women's career progression. It is, it is predominantly, the, the military is still predominantly male, so it is usually usually women who kind of occupy that role, although not, not completely. Um, and I think... There isn't a huge amount of understanding about about those experiences, and and also and that that's kind of more the sort of day to day kind of part of being married to someone in the military. But of course, as you say, there are the the, the big traumatic events as well, um, and because we're talking about a minority of society, it's it's there aren't always other people who understand what that feels like when you've been in a situation where someone's been in a war zone and what it was like when they came home or when they didn't come home. Um, so, yeah, I think I think military spouses often get forgotten in that, in that way in, in kind of discourse around the military. So, so yeah, so as I say, hoping to do, do a little bit to just raise some of those issues and those questions. Mm. Um, hopefully in a way that is accessible to people who might not yet be familiar with the ancient world um, and have come at it more from a contemporary angle as well. So so maybe kind of introducing some people to Homer and tragedy who might not necessarily 
um, have known much about it before. Are you integrating much of the way your public engagement with that at all? I would really love, at some point, um, it comes back to the funding question, <laughs> if, I, if I could get a, a sizeable grant for doing some public engagement, I would really love to, to do some work with military spouses, possibly some creative work involving storytelling or theatre, um, where we work together with um, a creative practitioner to create contemporary versions of of the mythical military wives of the ancient mm-hmm. world. And as I say, there have been things like this done a little bit with veterans in the States, nothing over here and, and nothing that I'm, I'm aware of with, with military spouses. So maybe at some point in the future that'll be something that I, I would really like to, to get involved in doing. Oh, nice. <laughs> so the book is on the horizon then. Yes. Anything else uh, that you anything else you'd like to promote? Oh gosh, that's the big thing at the moment. But I would say look out for Being Human Festival announcements on the public engagement side, not just from the point of view of what I'm going to be doing, but um, from what colleagues nationally are going to be doing. And that's that's across the board with humanities, not just classics, but there will, I suspect, be quite a few classically themed things happening. Um, but it's it's a national festival, so there'll be something near everyone so to look out for that that's that's the next big thing that i'll be involved in cool and people can find you on twitter as well yes at emma bridges and also um if people are interested in the kinds of things we've been talking about maybe have a look at our blog the ics as well which talks about some of the public engagement projects that we funded and some of the other things that we've done here for public engagement yeah and the xerxes book is is still yes it's still available yeah (laughs) brilliant right well thank you very much thank you nice to talk to you Thanks for listening to Copy and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian.